Welcome to Legally Green, the podcast on sustainability's formative effects on law. Hi, hello. My name is Zuza, and next to me are Rob. Hi, guys. And Hannah. Hello. We're three law students at Maastricht University in the Netherlands. Welcome to the first episode of our podcast Legally Green, where we explore the influence of sustainability movements on the current and future trends in the European Union's widely understood law. Today, we'll look at environmental law from a far away legal philosophical perspective. We'll explore the legal approaches to the protection of nature that prevail in the EU now, and that may also become relevant in the future, the nearest or a little bit more far away. After all, what is the legal definition of nature or the environment? And is nature the subject or object of law? That means Do people have a right to the environment or an obligation towards the environment? Can nature, including its non-living elements like stones or trees, have any rights whatsoever? And we cannot promise to give you any straightforward answers to these questions. We'd like to show you some pros and cons of different legal perspectives on, on these issues and related ideas, with the prospect of coming back to all of these when we talk about other developments in environmentalism's influence on law in the EU. So firstly, what are nature rights? I've taken quite a leap right now, so, so let us take a step back. The title of today's episode, which will be divided in parts, is Nature Rights in the EU, a chance, a dream or a nightmare. And so far I've said nothing of what the mysterious nature rights are. Uh, if I were to ask you guys, what would you say first comes to your mind when, when hearing this? For me, that would be the indigenous law and spirituality, rights of rivers. Well, yeah, I, I really like the sentence nightmare because I, I think it resonates with me. Indeed, I would say that nature rights and, and the problematic aspects concerning this topic are currently a nightmare specifically for, for the policies uh, developing develop, developed within the EU sphere, but will cover this later so maybe I will not spoil uh, the things that are going to be covered. Yeah it's it's quite tricky yeah and the concept is incredibly diverse. It would be really a lie to say that it is a new idea to treat the earth as equal or as a person but it is quite of a fresh idea in the western legal philosophy which obviously includes the EU just as much and the whole concept is part of the earth jurisprudence and environmental law concepts and earthly law idea. So just to summarize with a simple, maybe even simplified definition, nature rights means acknowledging that natural objects such as trees and rivers have their own rights, autonomous and independent from human interests, and that these objects should be protected by law equivalently to humans, meaning that they should have some form of judicial protection or legal standing Um, or even legal personhood in one way or another. And the whole proposition derives from the idea that the environment deserves protection greater than any anthropocentric approach may ever give to it. Um, I've seen proposals that such personified environmental protection should amount to a constitutionality enshrined legal notion, but there are also other ideas. So the underlying notion is the necessity of the protection of the environment, but I dare to ask, Do you think that this notion is actually consented among societies nowadays? Do we have to protect the environment? Well, I I can already see that I will be the pessimistic one of, of our three. Because, um, well, I'm very willing to present the position that no, um, there is actually a very poor consensus in this regard. Uh, not even mentioning the fuzzy definition and understanding of what environmental protection means. What does it entail? and how strongly it can be influenced by various geo, social, political aspects. Um, well, I can certainly make some arguments about the problematic geopolitical view of environmental protection. Um, for instance, it's placed in a hierarchy of priorities that we humans have, and its dependence on economic and political stability. Uh, look at the war at the Ukraine and, and the fact how how significant impact it had on the on the environmental policies, uh, not only the EU ones, but in general the worldwide uh, concerning the energetic crisis. 
Um, so yeah, so definitely that's not a straightforward thing. And still, even a pessimist like Rob cannot forget that environmental protection is definitely rising on the political agenda. Though it is rarely a priority, people have become more mindful of the impact on, on the environment. The links between environmental destruction and health risks or reduced economic growth have been incre increasingly acknowledged. I think both of you um, have some right here. Uh, indeed, a lot of entities and a lot of people uh, are quite skeptical about the whole environmental protection. Um, I'm, I don't want to go into the theories of whether climate change is, is correct or not, but there are even these people, the, the, the people who don't even believe that there is any need for environmental protection. But on the other hand, if you open the European Commission's website, so we go back to the EU, you'll see plenty of resources saying we should protect the environment, we should protect biodiversity, um, that is the diversity of the forms of life on our pl planet. And because it all helps us to live, it sustains us. That's where the sustainability word comes from. And we need these resources. So we need to take care of them. So we need the natural capital to stay alive. And that is the rhetoric that I often encounter, which is um, the reason we should care is that if we don't care, our game on the earth is over. And this is a very uh, selfish or maybe pragmatic approach. And today it is um, endorsed in the form of human rights approach to environmental protection that we should protect healthy environment because the access to healthy environment is a basic human right. And this and other similar anthropocentric approaches are popularized not only in a traditional form of obligations and prohibitions, but also in forms of cooperative approaches. And we have all the international agreements also here, from which, giving point to Rob, more and more states are actually going away. Um, but still, voluntary codes, agreements, associations, NGOs taking action, all that happens, but is mostly anthropocentric. Well, definitely that is true. However, um, the problem I have, the, the, the things I struggle with, is that um, isn't that just a populistic banner which is aimed at reaching, um, encompassing all the political groups in order to strive some kind of consensus which in the end, it's not working, to be honest. Maybe. Maybe. But on the other hand, um, do we even have to have this consensus for the protection of the environment at all? Especially in the, in the state kind of relationship when we can have laws that will impose certain decisions on other entities. And that's what also happens. It's often the businesses being pretty much against more and more restrictions, while it is often the state saying, no, actually, you have to recycle all the trash that you have. Otherwise, you have to pay a fine or whatever else. And I think that's the direction we're, we're going into. We're in the Netherlands, so we can also see the, the, the vast uh, criminal environmental law that's been developed here, uh, which is, well, against the whole idea of everyone wants to care. It's actually somebody wants to care and that somebody needs others to care as well, I think. Well, regardless of whether or not that is consensual or maybe it's yeah a dream of some groups in societies, uh, considering that the, the commission itself and the, the EU institutions um, propose these politics of the EU that they care about the environment and that this law of the EU should um, take the protection of the environment into account in one way or another, um, I think it's it's not really up to us to decide why the EU does so, but the thing is it does. And whether it's effective or not is a completely different question, but they really want the world to see that the EU cares about um, the earth. And we could open the statistics for the European Green Deal and see how the Commission brags um, and tells us how to proceed with legislative and other actions to best protect the environment and achieve the goals that they have set and we see that greenhouse gas emissions are falling climate related economic losses are lower than ever we have more forests and woodland quite steady increase in the use of renewable energy we have more and more zero emission vehicles and on paper it looks great if we accept that the goal is to reduce the human influence on, on climate to the very minimum but i would say this is overly optimistic on the side of the eu um materials. And I know, Rob, you looked into car industry some time ago and figured out that the newest EU policies are, in fact, at least not accounting properly for the, for the carbon dioxide emissions. 
uh, throughout the industry, throughout the whole supply chain, if not even failing to account for them, uh, right? Well, yes, I think that um, the automotive industry is actually a great example uh, to distinguish between the theory and the practice and, and also uh, the difference between the banners and, uh, you know, this boasting about um, about the success of these environmental policies, when in reality they might be slightly different. What I mean is that the fact that in theory the decrease in CO2 emissions, pollution per new car is lower, um, is a little bit biased since it does not take into account a substantial indirect carbon footprint that is increased due to the transitioning to so-called clean energy vehicles. Uh, this means changing completely the, in, in the supply chain, uh, the changes concerning the technology that is used and the resources that are used in order to develop and in order to create such technology. So therefore, there are a lot of statistical issues, political reasons that are actually uh, maybe creating this viewpoint, this very optimistic viewpoint, a little bit biased, in my opinion. Biased in the sense of uh, which direction? Biased in the direction of simply gaining and um, keeping the political power by saying how effective the, the, the measures are, where in reality they might actually pose bigger problems that are not touched upon and which are um, actually not changing the status quo, to be honest. It's just washing hands to an extent mm. without making a significant difference. Uh, I think this can be proved by recent developments with regards to this automotive industry. The fact that actually the plan to decrease the CO2 uh, um, emission vehicles, so the combustion engines vehicles, to zero by 2035 is actually being undermined. And, and there are plans to actually bring it down uh, because it is visible that it's not working to such an extent as it was presented to us. And, and that's what I'm worried about with this regard. Yeah, I, it, it, you mentioned uh, greenwashing. I'm going to leave it for now, but it's, that's interesting. But that also links this bias thing to what, uh, what Hannah mentioned before, that people are more aware of the uh, environmental protection. And the society tends to, in general, have more and more these movements that support environmental protection. And so this is what you said about the political power and kind of presenting the image of being green uh, in quotation marks links very well with the need that they see in the in the society yeah i could talk for hours about uh, also local policies um here and the proponents of the nature rights idea coming back to the topic they say that as the policies stand now so everything that we do as the law stands now it is just insufficient to achieve climate neutrality and um so it's it's insufficient to achieve the goals that that the actors actually set themselves. And I think we can confidently say that it is insufficient then to achieve the Commission's brave and very optimistic plan to achieve the climate neutrality by 2050. That's 27 years from now on. So I'll draw you a simple nature rights argument, just food for thought. The fossil fuels are still subsidized and endorsed by some of the member states in the EU. Our current approach to protection of the earth for our good, this position of, of power that we put ourselves in as, as humans, seems to be disproportionate to the dangers that are right behind the corner. If the only reason for which we're supposed to protect the environment is our own pocket and comfort, then there will be such subjects for which the comfort attainable without that additional bender of being eco-friendly will be more beneficial, even if that means paying additional fines or being burdened in any way by the law. So... That's the kind of economic argument for why, without nature rights, we're just always going to be in this position where certain very powerful entities will not really have to care. And so the law just cannot change these financial and power incentives as it stands out with the anthropocentric approach. Mm, because itself, it cannot can only protect the environment indirectly. I might be lying right now a little bit because locally and regionally we do have policies where it works completely different but that is the star of today's episode that's the rights of nature that we're going to talk about so i've just um spoilered a little bit that it's not really true that nature rights don't exist anywhere and the law always protects the environment indirectly i highlighted that nature rights is a um, proposition 
kind of a new one to our problems here in, in Europe or in the Western world. It's also in the US. But I also said it's not really new. It's a revolutionary for our property-focused legal mindset, but it is really not revolutionary in many places and many communities in the world, which have been treating the world differently than the Western societies really for ages. And I do tend to talk here about the indigenous communities who just treat the earth, um, in my opinion, better, but that's just an opinion. And the EU is just not the center of the world. And Nature does not always have to be viewed from that perspective of an economic value that, that we have here often. There are these communities which, um, seeing that modern environmental law does not account for the rapid climate devastation, simply turn the paradigm a little bit back um, to, the, to the place where it really used to be, to the place of treating human beings as just part of this environment, part of an ecosystem, rather than really lords or owners. Of it, And these places include uh, Ecuador, Bangladesh, Philippines, Costa Rica, and to a certain extent also the USA, which might be surprising. Um, that's on the state level, uh, and more so really in, in case law than in any adopted statutory provisions, but it's also common law, so that, that works pretty well. And there are quite a few places here. Also Australia, which I haven't mentioned here, uh, but um, that also happens more and more often. And there, the people decided to approach the protection and conservation of nature with, with the focus of, of representing nature, giving it rights like sending, like rights to remedies, also imposing a duty of precaution towards nature. And sometimes this is in the form of environmental constitutionalism, which means putting the environment and nature into the constitution. But sometimes it's also differently through secondary legislation. Yeah, well... What is really interesting here, um, I, I realized when, when you were talking about this, is to note that most of these societies, at least many of them, um, include some kind of a metaphysical element, which, which, you know, excludes this egocentric approach to understanding the hierarchy of man and nature, creating some kind of a bond between man and nature. So, you know, the anthropocentric approach will never get rid of, of this practical tool-like element. Uh, maybe perhaps this is the core of the problem, that we have focused too much on ourselves, uh, forgetting that the environment is not a tool for cultivation of personal cumulative benefit, but that we are an integral part of the environment, responsible for balancing its interests with our own interests. But to put it simply, the idea that is common to all of these legal systems is that we should recognize nature's legal personality and award it with the protection equal to the one that is traditionally reserved for natural and legal persons, correct? Well, my question then is, how does this work in practice? Mm, yeah, I know. It, it, it really sounds bizarre to us. Uh, give legal standing to a river. Um, a river having legal personhood. And obviously, the protection cannot really be the same as for humans. Even if we say it's equal, it cannot be the same because neither rivers, nor trees, nor any other unalive natural entities um, can really talk and go to court. So we can't really give them legal standing. Um, that means that we would have to decide to appoint some person or a group or an association or some institution that would effectively be entitled to represent these entities in court. And if you think about that, that's not really something we don't know. We have curatorship. We have persons in societies even. We have children that don't always account for themselves. We have certain persons that also get curators when they cannot represent themselves. To give nature equal rights means that it would be a tort claim for the river if the river were harmed. By destroying its ecosystem, by pollution, effectively there would be no need for that link that we have right now when we have to link the harm done to any human being. So if we pollute the river, we don't really have to claim in the natural rights perspective that this pollution harmed any human or any ownership or any interest that is protected for the sake of human. It's enough that we prove that the action that we've done violated the interests of the river itself, which is to be clean, for instance, or to have the ecosystem in place. And it still sounds bizarre to, to me. So just an analogy, if some decades ago someone suggested animals should have rights, they'd be called really crazy. Animals should have rights. And right now, the law often 
grants certain rights to animals, also, although not really granting them legal standing, we have to treat them separately from things, although they are often treated as things for the purpose of, of the law. Um, there is also another controversial analogy that I really, really don't want to make, but a lot of nature rights proponents use it, which is if many, many decades ago somebody suggested to um, give rights to a person of color, we would also call them bizarre. And that's an analogy that I think uh, is unfair to the people of color, but that is an analogy that they use often in literature, if you if you read it, about nature of rights. So maybe that ridiculity of, of nature rights uh, comes because it's so novel uh, to us. It really dates back only to 1970s and the work of, of uh, Professor Christopher Stone. Should trees have standing toward the legal rights for natural objects? And he begins this essay with an analogy to, to, to illustrate that expansion of legal representation, of recognition of legal personhood. The idea that something or someone is a person, a subject with a legal position under the law, rather than being an object of the law, dependent on the legal positions of said subjects. And um, he, he uses another analogy, yet another one, with uh, children and women, saying, oh, children and women uh, used to have no rights, not even personhood. Now they do. They are persons equal to any other man. And he adds that not only natural persons are granted this personhood, but we're now also granting personhood to corporations, municipalities, other legal persons. And by showing these examples, he tries to convince the reader that, hey, what if just for a moment we imagine that natural objects were actually legal persons under the law? Indeed, a parallel can be drawn between what you've described as nature rights and corporate legal personality or limited legal capacity. Uh, nevertheless, the environment would remain incapable of representing itself, wouldn't it? How would its representation work, and would the environment have a guardian appointed for this purpose, as it is in the case of children? Perhaps, similarly to a corporation, there will be an individual or a group of people whose actions will be interpreted as the actions of the environment itself. You see, a legal person usually has a board that acts for and on behalf of the legal entity, and this means that they can make binding agreements on behalf of the legal entity. My question is then, how would this work for nature? Whose actions are to be interpreted as the nature's actions. In any case, what bothers me is that sometimes it feels like trying to put the idea of nature rights into practice brings us back to the starting point and the level of protection we already have for the environment. Awarding legal personality to a corporation makes sense because the company can make decisions, enter into an agreement, be responsible for its debt and what is important, acquire obligations and then be held liable for not fulfilling them. How can a natural entity do any of these things? How could you hold the environment liable for its unfulfilled obligations? Uh, it seems like nature will need a representative anyways, regardless of whether it's a, it has a legal personality or not. Nature's legal personality would be a legal fiction, but as opposed to the corporate personhood, a legal fiction that seems to be of very little practical consequence. Mm. Yeah, actually, uh, when it comes to... It, it awakened me a little bit with uh, that corporations have also certain obligations. They uh, can be held liable. That's interesting. Um, there is a, a little point of that in literature later on. Uh, we'll talk about that. But there are actually certain scholars proposing that um, awarding nature rights would also mean awarding nature obligations. Awarding maybe is a bad word, but um, putting obligations on nature. And how would that work? Uh, some people suggest national funds in that if somebody, well, is committing a tortious act toward the nature and they are held liable, they have to pay. To whom do they pay? To the national funds. And then when there is a natural disaster that is happening without the human hand and is really natural one, then the nature is held liable for that and there is money waiting to help uh, restore that to help make that bad and that accident good. So um, I don't know if I agree that there is uh, like no practical consequence, but you're right saying, well, that's complicated. Uh, that's that uh, granting legal personhood is uh, not enough. It it still will bring us back to the position where we can say, well, the environment is now a person. 
And if we end the discussion here, we're changing nothing. Maybe we're even making it worse because uh, we're creating a thing, a concept that then we have to accommodate with different other concepts. And if we do it wrong, we can have situations as millions of billions of different cases before the courts to consider just because everyone got a standing um, because somebody didn't account for the fact that, and we have acti populis then, so um, popularis. So uh, a lot of problems here. I do see your point, however. After all, many concessions are already made to enable the legal existence of legal entities. It is accepted as it is done in the interests of economic growth. Nobody would argue that it's unreasonable that a legal person that cannot marry, neither can go to jail or vote in the elections, should not be allowed to have a different, so to say, customised form of legal personality. If this legal fiction is not contested, then there must be a way to trim the concept of legal personality in a way that helps to achieve the goals of environmental protection and sustainability. Without doubt, it would be an important conceptual shift away from our traditional anthropocentric notions of environmental management. Yet, such a shift is much needed, seeing that we have been thus far largely unsuccessful in preventing environmental destruction. Yeah, I think that it's also relevant because uh, when looking at the current, at, at the status quo, basically, um, and what Hanya covered, so it all goes back to the question of representation and, and to build on that, uh, it thus also goes back to the question of the political system. Um, so, for example, for instance, in democracy, we decide to give the power to protect the environment to the government elected by the people, right? So we get rid of this vicarious responsibility of representing the environment by giving up the ownership of it, let's let's call it this way, to the government. Uh, but of course, democracy has its flows. So um, and yeah, so so it's it's really interesting to see um, how it also this our feeling of of responsibility um, is bound to to these many external factors and. Um, for instance, I don't want a rubbish. Um, I, I don't want to throw a rubbish on my land, but I don't care if I can't see it and um, and don't own it. Um, the interesting thing is, uh, for example, um, what is the scope of the environment? Because it is like with military conflicts, like wars. When we hear about the war in Syria, um, indeed, it affects us to a certain extent, but in general, we don't care. Um, and here, an interesting theory is the social uh, integrity theory, there were one about us and them. Um, so, so yeah. So, so basically, how how do we fight it? How do we fight this 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 human aspect that 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 shapes our feeling of responsibility? Uh, because, in my opinion, the current actions um, that show the direct effects of climate change are are not really working. Mm, yeah, totally. the The ownership part uh, is uh, quite interesting. Um, that we give, you said, give the ownership of the environment in a certain way to uh, to the government or to the society, to everyone. And here, um, in, even in Europe, we're going to see differences in, in the law. Um, if you go to the Eastern uh, European legal systems and to the civil codes and you really, really read the property board uh, closely, uh, you'll see some, some leftovers of the uh, post-socialist system. And you'll see that... Um, the, the Eastern European legal systems, like the Polish one, are more likely to give that ownership to the of the environment to the society and really impose certain social obligations on them. And that usually goes into, well, the local governments have these obligations, they kind of assume them. But in general, that happens often. And the more individualistic the society is, then the less kind of communal protection is granted to the environment and it's more about individual actions and how can we punish individuals or legal entities that harm the environment but not only harm the environment but then also harm humans in that way and take away our human rights to the environment and then you're right both of you are right how do we fight if our tools seem to be completely ineffective and then how do we ensure legal certainty if we go with the nature rights approach, how do we ensure that everyone knows what this nature is, what kind of obligations there are involved, what kind of rights? I think uh, these are the critics that we're going to keep 
coming back to. Um, so I've got a couple of suggestions and inspirations how nature rights work from scholars here. Um, it's impossible to discuss all of the theories and claims that are made, that are being made. This is a very current topic also, uh, in, in just one episode or two episodes even. So I just made a selection of some of the arguments based on quite different foundations from different times, different people. And starting from Christopher Stone, so the man from whom our kind of westernized vision of nature rights comes from, 1970s, uh, he proposes that in practice nature should be granted such rights that would allow for, uh, for some form of judicial review of actions that would potentially violate um, nature's rights. And to achieve these, these objects should be granted some form of legal standing, for instance via guardianship, and some form of autonomous legal position. For instance, the right in question should not be born by a human, kept by a human, but by the object itself. We, we shouldn't have to prove that, that link between a human and human interest and the environment. The rights given to the environment do not have to be absolute by no means. Maybe they even shouldn't be, because that would make our lives absolutely impossible if we cannot do anything in the environment, cannot build houses or um, cannot go into the forest because we're, you know, walking on the grass, that would make it impossible. So no, not really an absolute right. But they should be protected, the rights, in a spectrum-like method, with uh, certain injuries, especially the irreparable ones, being absolutely prohibited. And um, other ones being allowed if there is a certain balance track, so kind of a spectrum-like. Um, the advantages of this position is that it allows for a welfare economy calculations that we already know. Any damage done to the environment is, in fact, borne by the environment and indirectly by the society around, so the harm done to a river should be reimbursed to the river itself, so that the society around this river may also become compensated for any damage sustained. We, we know that from, from practice. That's how we operate if we protect the environment, actually. And there was uh, an interesting comment on that side. If the environment bears rights, it might bear liability. So that's coming back to what I mentioned. And Stone suggests that we should have these funds that accumulate this money and then give back. Uh, so I'd like to hear your opinion on, on, on Stone's proposition. If we should have rights, we should have spectrum, and then, oh, we can also have liabilities. Well, it's definitely a way to approach nature's liability. Having not heard that example, I couldn't even imagine how nature could ever be held responsible for its obligations. Using the damages that the environment has been awarded as a tort victim to pay for the damage caused by, an environment, by the environmental disasters, that seemed like an environmentally friendly way of using the tools of tort law. Even if it is simplistic in how it ignores that many of the environmental disasters are amplified by men's reckless attitudes towards the environment. Oh yeah, oh yeah, the, the last part, totally inspired, I think. Um, the, 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 right now, um, there is uh, also there is a podcast about that in uh, The Nature Rights in Australia, and uh, there is a in January uh, this year, there has been the biggest flood in Western uh, Australia, like ever, and um, and that is probably caused by by men's actions. But everyone sees it as a natural disaster. Last year we had the fires in Australia, also. Everyone sees it as a natural disaster, where in fact it is very much amplified by by men. Uh, Stone does not really account for that. He leaves it as it is. Uh, we're back in 1970s, so the situation is slightly different then. Uh, then, let's go 20 years forward, 1989, um, Mr. Roderick Nash, The Rights of Nature, A History and Environmental Ethics. So if you think that Stone was revolutionary at that point, well, um, Nash begins his work with a diagram of an inverted triangle. So the wide open side represents the future and the apex represents the past. And according to Nash, law is inseparably connected with ethics and hence it follows the evolution of ethics. And this might point towards the trends in the evolution of law, where in the triangle, the future of ethics includes our stance towards the whole universe, that would be the, the standing that we would have, and while right now we're somewhere in the middle, we are limited to our perception to humans, maybe also animals, and in the apex itself, it's only uh, one person, only us. So his theory is expanding the concept of rights, 
where the rights of nature are to be given as a natural step forward. We have only people, now we have people, sometimes animals, also all people, not only men, and then we go on and on and on. Um, so I wouldn't even try to, to, to cover the whole work, uh, but discovering Nash is, is really helpful here, because contrasted to Stone, the latter focuses his arguments on the socio-economic arguments we've already talked about, and Nash completely goes away from that and uses uh, ethics strictly uh, to argue that the, the the rights of nature should exist. And he mentions plenty of theories to, to, to point to the fact that cruelty towards animals or unjustified destruction of the world uh, should not be allowed. And to mention some, we have liberalism of John Locke, the one that is also used to argue for property. Um, utilitarianism of Bentham, which is very prominent for the economics of today. So in comparison, Stowe says, we want to have something from the environment, we want to be alive, and hence we shall grant rights to the environment to better protect it. And Nash summarizes uh, other arguments, that uh, humans and animals both have rights derived from natural rights, rights invoked by John Locke in his theory, and it's the ones which cannot be waived. And so here we talk about animals, but we can take it a step further. Humans, animals, and nature have all rights derived from natural rights, and these cannot be waived. So we can't really take away uh, these rights from them. And uh, Nash worked also prominently for the evolution of ethical environmentalism in the USA that's not really le relevant for our discussion uh, today. However, there is one disadvantage of this, well, very ethical position of, of Nash, because uh, he focuses really at this evolution on the American philosophical environmentalism and avoids discussing pretty much most of the non-Anglo-Saxon world and the traditions that we also had, for instance, in, in Eastern Europe even, which is part of the EU, relevant to our discussion today. Um, I still think um, Nash argues that we can't have both a liberalist property center idea for coexistence with nature and a liberation in the sense of the end of oppression and destruction on the earth. So he, he points us to this um, weird conflict that we have inside of us. On the one hand, we want liberty and freedom, and on the other hand, we tend to kind of sabotage our own uh, world. And he's the one that is actually making comparisons between racial struggle and environmental protection. Uh, well, you see the, the American philosophy. Yeah, and um, I don't think, um, and that's what I'm struggling with. I, I just don't think that comparing racial struggle and environmental protection uh, is is that valid. Not only based on the characteristic of of, of people and nature in general, the fact that, that 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 human beings, no matter of of race of color, are are an abstract beings, also an abstractly thinking beings, uh, which which is I think different and distinct from 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 the environment itself um, however I can see the analogy and I, I agree with it that, that it's also a part of this um, ethical development progress of, of human beings as we are uh, which makes sense um, nevertheless whether it is possible to to, to remain this liberalistic property centered idea together with with stopping um, the oppression is possible. Well, I doubt, uh, looking also at the um, political developments um, of the racial divisions in, for example, the United States, the fact how, how now it is said that, that people of color has the same possibilities of, of actually access to property, for example, where um, it is quite, well, biased and, and quite, you know, flawed logic in basically looking at the history, looking at the monopoly of, of white people, for example, in the America they, they created, um, while simultaneously oppressing people of color. So so that's what I struggle with this. Uh, that's why I struggle with this theory. Nevertheless, I, I can see the validity behind the analogy. So, um, yeah, definitely makes sense to an extent. Yeah, I think he's, he's radical in saying, oh, this is the oppression towards the environment. Uh, but he was successful in, in creating a movement of ethical environmentalism, at least kind of inspiring it. So I think um, maybe he had a point. Maybe he acted in, in the place where he had to use these arguments to speak to people. Um, as someone 
different, a cultural historian, not really a lawyer, um, but a proponent of, of jurisprudence uh, movement, uh, where governments and law should put Earth interests first, because, well, um, our human-made law should comply with the laws of nature. We're also part of nature. Thomas Berry. So according to Thomas, all beings, which must include rivers and mountains, have their own limited and relative sets of rights. And he distinguished three. And that also includes humans. Uh, the right to be, the right to habitat or a place to be, and the right to fulfill its role in the ever-renewing processes of the Earth community, which we can translate to sustainability. Um, well, my, my main struggle with, with uh, this idea is... Uh, practicality right now we are unable to provide with like everyone with a place to live even in the netherlands we have the housing struggle a lot of people can't find a place to live and we say well every single being even an alive being should have a place to be and should be granted a right for the place to be i don't think it's possible um and finally one last person for today which is a uh, cormac cullinum uh, wide law a manifesto for Earth justice, that's his work. Uh, he's a practicing lawyer in uh, South Africa, so yet a different place. And he is definitely into environmentalism. Uh, he's the director of the Wild Law Institute, which directly advocates for rights of nature. So this is the, the current practice. And we have the Universal Declaration of the Rights of Mother Earth and Global Alliance for the Rights of Nature, thanks to that man, and also the International Tribunal on the Rights of Nature and the European Tribunal on the Rights of Nature, which are all legal instruments and organizations and institutions that focus on the protection of the environment with the endorsement of the rights of nature. And um, Cormac has uh, two main propositions. First, that ecosystems and natural communities should be legal persons. That's the legal personhood we've talked about. And secondly, that human law should be consistent with Earth jurisprudence. That's the so-called wild law. And remarkably... No really revolution is foreseen here, which uh, you maybe like. The actions are just being undertaken as we stand now, with the law that we have now, and we just act as we can with the legal system we have and just do it evolutionary and change it as we go. Um, the idea is that we have to transform our current legal system, but um, we don't have to do it in a, in a revolutionary way. We don't have to abandon everything we already have. So um, out of all these, these uh, concepts I, I've mentioned here, that's uh, three, which one seems more plausible to, to you? So basically, I think all of them um, cover similar aspects, however, from different approaches. And, and most of them, well, from theoretical point of view, have sense. However, as you rightfully noted, um, there are some practical problems with it. And that's why... I actually like the Cullinan's approach. Uh, why? Because basically I, I find it hard to understand how it would be possible to accommodate nature rights as they are presented by, by many of these um, scholars uh, within the current property-oriented and, and um, egocentric, as we have established, uh, legal framework. Um, what Kalinan seems to be doing uh, is, is asking, asking why not simply create a new parallel uh, legal system with independent jurisprudence running simultaneously parallelly to the one which we have already created. Um, and of course, this, this still raises the problem of how to integrate the system within the often conflicting, this parallel classical system. Um, nevertheless, th this idea of, of an approach um, which strives to create something new and not necessarily um, completely recreate what, what has been already done uh, might be much more feasible and, and realistic uh, also with regards to this practical reality. And, and so, 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 yeah, that's, that's why it, brought, uh, it drew my attention, definitely. Yeah, that's absolutely true with, with, with Kulinan. And he's being successful, right? So I think that that also um, is important to see that he is creating things in the system that we have as now. He's not saying that the system is perfect. He's saying the same critics as we are, that the tools we have are insufficient. But he says, uh, well, these are tools. And so maybe we can create more tools 
rather than take away the tools we already have, abandon them and try a revolution because we don't know what will happen then. That's what Otana also mentioned with the legal personality. Are we sure that we can actually grant legal protection to the environment effectively if we only granted legal personality? Are we sure we can actually do it in practice? Um, well, that's, uh, I think, most of it for the... Exactly. I think we can draw inspiration from what we have already achieved in the legal domain because those tools, they tend to, sometimes they do work well. We shouldn't just dispose of them and we can use what we have learned observing how they operate to devise the new tools in such a way that they function properly and really meet the goals that we want them to meet. Yeah, I think that's awesome take the uh, theoretical approach that we can learn and even if it's not practical on paper um, learn from it yeah i think we should definitely do that um, that's basically it for the uh, theory that i think uh, for the purposes of this podcast is good to know and the certainties you should know and uh, and then we can focus a little bit more on the on the eu and on the context that we really have here yeah, if we want to talk about environmentalism's influences on EU law, um, and then in here the effect of the f- and the future of the rights of nature uh, on the on the EU law, we should have at least a fundamental understanding of the scheme of EU uh, legal environmental protection as it stands now. And uh, t- to be honest, trying to explain EU environmental law in maybe fifteen minutes is an absolutely impossible challenge. But let's maybe try to encompass the basic structure of the RAF without really going into unnecessary details for the purpose of this episode. So the current status quo follows the Paul Pace principle, which is implemented by the Environmental Liability Directive, where any damage that the environment must be repaid by the polluter. The principle is quite simple. And this is really a part common to all our theories that we've just discussed. And the EU is really committed to improving the situation of climate change or biodiversity and acts towards um, it both on the international level, for instance, adhering really to the sustainable development goals. It also participates in the UN biodiversity conferences. It endorses various environmentally friendly strategies. Um, also taking part in the Paris Agreement on climate change, just name a few. But it also implements this idea on the EU regional level via policy making, via secondary legislation, non-binding agreements. And the absolute biggest part of this policy making is the European Commission's European Green Deal. Um, nevertheless, the EU itself calls it really an economic growth strategy. So we have European Green Deal on the one hand, which suggests a certain environmental policy. And on the other hand, we have that it's called really an economic growth strategy. So it falls into the pitfall of considering the production of the earth worth only such an effort that it is beneficiary to humankind. Environmental production is also part of the EU funding treaty, Articles uh, 11, 193 to 190, uh, from 191 to 193, the Treaty of the Functioning of European Union, ensure that the EU considers the good of the earth in all of its actions, legislative actions and other actions. And the main principles include the precautionary principle according to which, if it is uncertain whether an act impacts negatively the environment, this act should not be allowed. That's again something that is common to all of the theories. And every year the EU adopts certain environmental action programs. So the most uh, recent one has the following aims. I'm going to read them out just quickly. Achieving the 2030 greenhouse gas emission reduction target and climate neutrality by 2050. Enhancing adaptive capacity, strengthening resilience and reducing vulnerability to climate change. Advancing towards a regenerative growth model, um, decoupling economic growth from resource use and environmental degradation and accelerating the transition to a circular economy. Pursuing a zero pollution ambition including for air, water and soil, and protecting the health and well-being of Europeans, protecting, preserving and restoring biodiversity and enhancing natural capital, notably air, water, soil and forest, freshwater, wetland and marine ecosystems, reducing environmental and climate pressures related to production and consumption, particularly in the areas of energy, industrial development, buildings and infrastructure, mobility and the food system. That is uh, a lot of ideas, very vague concepts of what they want to 
achieve. Uh, how do they enforce it? Well, the EU has a certain system of enforcement, and that particularly includes every single of the member states. Uh, system of enforcement. So member states also have to provide for effective, proportionate and dissuasive criminal sanctions for the most serious environmental offensive. That links back to the to the uh, Netherlands prominent environmental criminal law. But there are also certain statistical and monitoring tools, so going a little bit away uh, from criminal law available to the EU and the member states. For instance, Copernicus, that's the European Earth Observation Program. We also have European Pollutant Release and Transfer Register, EPRTR. And all of that is covered by the blanket of European Parliament's resolutions, also the Aarhus regulation and other actions taken in the process. So that environmental action is absolutely everywhere and every single action of the EU has some kind of consideration of the environment done. But... Almost nowhere is it present in any other form that this anthropocentric approach, that the environment must be in a sustainable state, just because we, humans, deserve that for our development and for our growth. Which is not a negative approach in any way if it leads to a protection of the environment, but it is very, very far away from this approach of rights of nature. And I think uh, many issues arise from that perspective. So... Let's just stop for a second to discuss these these points and these um, proposals of the EU, because they are definitely not left without criticisms. Um, I think there are three primary ones, that it is anthropocentric, it circles around property, and has an underlying theme of economic growth. Um, moreover, also specifically for the EU, the protection of common interests such as the environment are also constrained by the limited CJEU's judicial action for non-privileged applicants, which is a parliamentist. Yeah, but we cannot ignore the, that these constraints, they do not come out of nowhere. Uh, there are many controversies that we have even come across during our discussion here. Uh, disputes around the concept of the nature rights and the effect that they might have on short-term economic growth. How likely is it really that in today's world we are able to step back and implement concepts that do not exactly aim at profit-making, at least in the short term? Yeah, and, and here I would like to come back to an idea which I um, initiated at the beginning of this episode. Uh, so also the aspect of how this anthropocentric um, basis, foundation is fragile um, in the scope, in the light of, of you know, of the changes uh, within the welfare of, of the society, uh, but also changes in terms of our needs. Um, more generally, how easily we forget about the environment when we are faced with more worrying issues that directly change our social situation. Um, because all these, you know, banners about um, climate neutrality, so all these policies also fit for 55, um, seems to be really, ideally, really, really nice. However, in, in practice, look at, for example, the influence of, of the war in the Ukraine uh, on, on these policies, the fact that we are actually um, taking a step back with regards to this progress of, of actually treating environment with due respect. Uh, since our needs changed due to the political situation, due to the geopolitical situation, um, the coal mines are being opened once again, even though they have been shut down and, and the policies of the EU were very stringent with, with this regard. So um, what I struggle is that from a legal perspective, uh, you know, there is a doctrinal difference between approaching an issue from an ecocentric or human-centric perspective. But what if we really want to achieve is a certain level of protection, well, then there is not necessarily only one correct choice. Uh, we could argue that the issue of enforcement, uh, which was touched, um, is the most pressing one at the moment. And there is no guarantee that changing one's attitude will actually lead to better enforcement. What I mean is that there is not really a causal relationship between having legal standing and ensuring obedience to the law. Um, so, so yeah, so basically that's also, which I think lacks within the, the policies of the EU concerning the environmental protection. Yeah, I think it's, it's a, it's a common problem to, to 
to every theory that includes the rights of nature and that includes the status quo, um, how do we ensure uh, that the the bad is is fixed, that whatever happens that is against the law is fixed, and that comes back to to what Hannah said because that's a really good argument. Um, is granting legal personhood and granting rights enough to ensure that these rights are respected? And um, I think it is, and there is one more uh, critique, though, which cannot be made against nature rights because they are not endorsed yet, at least, which is that the anthropocentric approach is just late or really unable to cover the, the whole damage cost. Uh, sometimes because it is impossible to draw a causation line between a perpetrator's act and then the effects of the damage sustained by humans due to the environmental harm done in the first place. So can we say land cancer caused by the activity of a nearby factory? Um, can we prove that? Or who is really harmed by the act of unnecessary deforestation of certain areas if it's not really the ecosystem um, itself? It doesn't harm anyone directly. And finally, that this anthropocentric approach cannot really justify any obligations towards the environment which are not directly beneficial to humans. Why should I pick up the trash I had uh, uh, not really left somewhere myself? Who has really that duty of care toward, uh, towards a river somewhere where I don't live? And there might be prohibitions um, to prevent damage done to humans, but there are really no uh, positive obligations that would protect the environment for the sake of it. That's at least the argument that is made. Uh, for the endorsement of rights of nature. Yes, exactly. And and that's my problem. These blurred lines between the definitions of, of what environment protection is, between, you know, establishing the causal link between uh, the perpetrators and and then the, the, the environment. Um, however, I think in this, um, in this particular issue, the shell case from the Netherlands uh, might be... Um, might be actually quite interesting because uh, it's interesting how the Dutch court came to the conclusion that specifically Shell was uh, liable for what they called general environmental threat uh, posed by its activities. Um, so why is it so fascinating? Is that, well, because it is not only Shell that is taking part, you know, um, in this whole demand supply chain Um well, we can always, they can always argue that they are just a part of, of you know, uh, of the big demand for, for their activities, for their services, for their goods they are producing. Um, and, you know, and those responsible for demand, so the consumers, um, are they not equally responsible? Um, or do we treat people as completely, you know, let's call it by its name, stupid, and blame them for their own actions. So that, that's what I struggle with. And that's, I think, why this, this case was quite revolutionary. However, also lacking some kind of a legal certainty with regards to invoking it in, in similar issues. Yeah, with, with the Shell case, I also find it fascinating because it's happened in the Netherlands. It's on appeal now, but it, it, it has uh, happened. And that's fascinating because this is the approach that would be taken by the advocates of the nature rights. Um, they found the causal link. They had to find a causal link between the actions of Shell and uh, and some kind of general environmental threats. So they have been looking for it. But basically, they have decided that it's sufficient to prove that there there was not really a human one human harmed in that process, uh, which is kind of revolutionary and often will be impossible for for many legal systems to to find um, that liability without that really directly um, pointable victim. So I do find it really interesting. But you're also right saying, okay, um, do we then impose that responsibility only on certain big entities or do we impose it on everyone? And How do we uh, go around? Can we now sue any kind of company because they produce something using oil or coal? Uh, that, that does po pose a lot of threats to the legal certainty. So summarizing a little bit, for the EU environmental protection, we do have a lot of policies, a lot of actions, some secondary legislation, also primary uh, treaties, which make sure to protect the environment. Um, and there are certain fundamental issues that um, this currently adopted approach poses with uh, with standing, with uh, the also certainty that you can bring an action if something happens, if you are an association. And the, 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 the 
the question that comes to mind is, will that approach that they have now actually solve the problems that they seem to want to solve with all the proposals that they pose, with the green deals, with the environmental agreements? And that is the end of this part of this episode. And so far we've really discussed how this legal environmental protection looks like right now, what is so imperfect about it, we're critical, also about the nature rights that we've defined, we looked how they are currently endorsed or are not, and what are practical difficulties that they may pose, and we'll take a break here and leave you with all these thoughts, and come back next time with a conclusion on how we could maybe implement certain parts of this nature rights uh, in the EU, and also about the future of what is happening in the EU and in the member states with regard to environmental protection. So thank you for uh, listening and uh, for, for the talk, Rob and Hannah. Yeah, thanks. It was a really fruitful one, um, a very thought-provoking one, definitely. And it was a pleasure to be here. <laughs>